Good morning, everybody. It already feels very quiet in here. Um, There's a lot of experience in this room, I'm aware. And this morning I'll I'll offer a few reflections. I don't plan to speak terribly long. Um, A few reflections on vision, aspiration, intention. And we'll see where I get, but hopefully looking from the bigger picture of your vision of practice right to the moment-to-moment, how that uh, expresses itself in your taking your seat, opening the door, handling your mind, going deeper. We also have a, um, it's not a terribly much of a ritual object, could, could be, depends on our perception. This is for your mobile phones, if you want to hand them in, and we'll do that at the end. We won't, we won't do it primary school style, where you kind of walk up and hand them in and I, I click the register. Um, but, but it can be really useful to, to relinquish, as the Buddha um, was a great advocate of relinquishment as a way to awaken, the relationship of renunciation and awakening. <clears throat> So as we know from the brilliant models that the Buddha offered, if you think of the Eightfold Path, it's headed up by right view. Our view, of whatever it is, path or anything else, any path, is the forerunner, we could say, how we view our vision of what's possible, how we see things, then influences our intention, our action, our effort, our livelihood, our mindfulness, our sanata. So looking a little bit at this morning, if you wish, before or as you begin, most of you, some of you have have begun already, um, as most of you begin, to look a little bit about what is your vision of practice, of what's possible for you, for each other. And... Uh, I think this is worth revisiting regularly as we change through our practice, through our life, through our life experience. We want to get current with that, to see is there any way that my view and my vision is limiting, perhaps, the awakening that's possible. Because our view influences our motivation, intention, and therefore what's possible. As it says in one Tibetan text, everything rests on the tip of motivation. It's not a kind of random process. Our motivation and intention shapes our world. It doesn't mean we get what we want. It doesn't mean we have control over outcomes. But our intention sets the compass in a certain direction and it has a momentum. So backing up one step from that, the view, the vision of what's possible. So if you are here for practice, for awakening, however you call it, there may be be, uh, uh, motivations nestled within that bigger frame of awakening. For example, what? What do you want? (laughs) What do you come for? Um, I come for refuge. 
I come just to breathe out and be close to myself. I come to know something about the end of suffering. I come to handle my mind. I come because I need a shelter in the storm. I come because I want to cross the floods, as the Buddha put it. I come because I want to live this life and I don't want to be on my deathbed wondering what was that about. I want to be awake. I want to be alive. I want to know. I want to be in contact. I want to serve. I want to find out. I'm curious. I want the adventure. And then if we see those embedded in the frame of awakening, of enlightenment, some bodhi, what is your view and vision of awakening? Of what this path and practice is dedicated to? Because you will have one. <laughs> Even if some of you might think you haven't thought about that, you, you will have one. We can't help it. We receive the archetypes of the images of the Buddha. We hear stories. We have our own experience of what we've touched and glimpsed of the deepest moments that our heart has rested upon in our life. And just to shine the light on what visions and views we're carrying, to see what they are, to see if they're limiting at all, and to see what would be possible in opening them up. I think my views, well, they have changed over the time. I, I think there's a whole mix, isn't there, in our psyche, in the chitta, there's a whole mix of views and motivations. I think for myself, uh, being very much involved in uh, social change in my younger years and getting, you know, whatever it was, it didn't work. <laughs> and coming to Dharma almost as a contrast, almost as, oh, phew, right? Almost making two worlds. You'll each have your own trajectory and story with that. As if going in, going internally, was where all the answers were. And I think that was a necessary trajectory, absolutely, for, for, for me and for some of us. Almost like, okay, I'm so entangled in the world, either if it's justice or boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever it is I'm entangled in the world let me step out a little bit find my ground find something that's deeper than that find something maybe I was hoping that wasn't the world some kind of transcendence that would be a little bit less disturbing a little bit more peaceful because after all isn't what that what the Buddhist points to a peace a knowing that is undisturbed this has changed and, and I, I would say uh, matured over time and again each of you will have your whole own stories with all these domains of inner and outer right? the inner and outer tussle we know the necessity any of us who are meditators of going in as we call it we know the necessity because we see that all things proceed from the mind. We see the mind shaping. We see our patterning shaping our interactions. And in then is the repetition, it's the same thing. We know the necessity of the inner work. But it's very easy because of the appearance that inner and outer become two in our mind. 
phew, I can put the world away for a little bit and I can do my inner work. Well, I don't think the Buddha ever put the world away. He says, take a seat. Take your seat in solitude. Absolutely. The empty hut, the root of the tree, doesn't mean we have to always be on the front line out there. We might at times. But take that seat of solitude. He didn't say put the world away. He said put away your covetousness and ill will for the world. Put away your hankering for it to be a certain way and your, oh my goodness, the world. Put that away. He didn't say put a little screen around you and disappear inside and then you'll get sussed. Then you'll find out. And I highlight it just because probably, again, many of us have been and will continue to explore the domains of inner and outer. We get too lost out there, give ourselves away, or we get tossed around in the ocean. The hankering for the inner life, for the depth, for that which doesn't appear as so worldly. But I would say our awakening and our vision of awakening needs to be nestled completely in a vision of awakening where inner and outer, the emptiness of inner and outer is thoroughly understood from the perspective of the Buddha and thoroughly, if not thoroughly understood by us, thoroughly practiced with so that we are not continuing to make a division that limits us, that limits our hearts, limits what's possible for each other and for this world. The, because it, it's very easy, well, I don't know, very, it's been very easy for me sometimes because of this gift of solitude, this gift that we have here, and I really want you to enjoy it. This isn't about you know, trying to fix things out there. This is really going where the solitude can take you. Absolutely. But how are we holding that solitude? Go where it takes you. But is there any way that when we close our eyes and attend to our breath, we have not just put away covetousness and ill will, but put away the world? Meditation retreat awakening even can look like a private affair. Eyes closed. I mean, he looks kind of private, doesn't he? You know, it's not, it's not an image of... of um, it's not a public image, at least the way that we're used to seeing public images. One thing I, I, I'm, I'm appreciative of our monastic brothers and sisters holding for us um, as lineage is that the, the Buddha always taught Dharma Vinaya, He didn't just teach Dhamma, he taught Dharma Vinaya. Dharma teachings refer very much to the realm of the mind, its views, its beliefs, its the handling of that. And our practice is a lot about that, our formal practice. Vinaya is the code of conduct that's very much about social, ethical, relational um, uh, domains. And this is the the list of all the rules and regulations that the monks and nuns have. And the lay people, we have the precepts and 
It always came together, Dharma Vinaya. So that those monks and nuns and us in this case, you for this month, this two weeks, in our solitude and exploring Dhamma is nestled in the context of Vinaya, our social location, our social... Um, uh, as Suvacho spoke beautifully last night, this courtesy of the handling of ourself in community and collective, the ethics and the, the wider picture. Here's how one of my teachers describes um, the world. So, uh, just before I get there, I would invite you, and maybe it's thoroughly known for you, um, but just to consider this morning that your vision of awakening, your vision of the end of suffering, of coming for refuge, of being close to yourself, of going deep, of going wide, is nestled in the context of the world. And what do we mean by the world? The world isn't the, from the Buddha's perspective, the um, just what's out here. Here's me, and then there's the world. Right. The world includes the inner domains of the mind and its beliefs and its views. This is what shapes the world. It includes the immaterial realms of social um, institutions, um, conventions, um, you know, family, nationality, tribe, etc., etc., and trees and grass and people and you know everything. It's everything. And then, just to bring it back into um, a practical practice part, I remember one of my friends, she had, um, was a student of Zen Master. What was his name? can't remember. Hokusan, I think. And she was travelling with him through the airport in Australia. And... Um, I don't know why they asked it so directly, but this is how the story got translated. Have you got any dangerous weapons? Um, and he said, yes. And he went, right, pointing to his head, understanding there is no weaponry that's other than shaped by the human aversion. And so seeing... Dharma practice, our handling of our aversion, our hunger and thirst, our handling of our ignoring of the neutral is nestled in a vision of the world and how we are embedded for better and for worse, for richer and for poorer. This this is the marriage, right? We are embedded in this context. So here's how, this is from Ajahn Sachito, um, a a great Dharma teacher and uh, friend. So I'll read the whole thing. He says, um, 
Yeah, this total environment, so what I just said, the inner, the outer, the immaterial, and the form. This total environment um, is what the Buddha referred to as the world. And he says, for these purposes, I'm going to refer to that as cosmos. Because some of us tend to think of world as things, lampshades and cars. This whole domain is cosmos. He says, this is the cosmos that the Dharma Vinaya addresses. This is the nature of which we humans are an intrinsic aspect. We are the aspect uh, of this cosmos that can reflect on itself and that can thereby develop a holistic wisdom that embraces and transcends any point or detail within the whole. I'll read it again in a minute. We are the aspect of we are an aspect of this cosmos that can reflect on itself and thereby can develop a holistic wisdom holistic wisdom that embraces and transcends any point or detail within the whole. Such wisdom, he says, accepts and cares for all, but it is not attached or confined to any position within that cosmos, whether that be self, other, a mind state, a tree, a society, or even infinite consciousness. He says the culmination of this development is Sambodhi, is awakening. So just take your seat for a minute. Let's, let's uh, really let this not be abstract at all. This is not for later. This is right now because, yes, we're embedded in the world, but that, if we really take that to heart, really bow to the causes and conditions that are here, the beautiful ones and the ugly ones of which we are inheritors, we can go deep, And we can know this awakening. The Buddha himself would have been thoroughly known his embeddedment. Embeddedment? Embeddedness. He would have thoroughly known his embeddedness, coming from an era and culture where the individual self had not yet got so fully developed as we are inheritors of the post-enlightenment development for better and for worse. Right? So turning to that embeddedness, right now, taking your seat in your social location, meaning your gender, your sexuality, your race, your language, your education, your um, peoples, your languages, your privileges, your um, oppressions, Taking our seat in that, not having to be guilty for it, apologize for it, shrink from it. Fully this, I am the inheritor myself of all that has come in this land and all of you maybe from other countries or different places. But this land with its beauty, its history, its history of colonialism, of uh, theft, its history of 
brilliance and great ideas and fantastic innovations. I am the inheritor of that. As one small part, the list is endless. If we go on and on and on, we find we are embedded in it all. I am the inheritor of my peoples, my those who cared for me, the genetic history, my ancestors. And maybe as I do this, you can take yourself in your location. My ancestors, the ones I'm proud of and the ones whose stories I don't know, and the ones who were dubious characters at times. We have it all. You know, if the Tibetan metaphor has, uh, which is a beautiful image and metaphor, you know, everyone has been our mother. You don't have to believe it or not. But if we consider that, then all causes and conditions are in my lineage somewhere. I start with the obvious ones. I bow. I breathe with the tenderness of taking that location. Because if I am to practice, as Ajahn Sachito is suggesting, I touch, I embrace each condition, and I open my hands around it, I transcend those conditions. Only by touching, by knowing, not identifying, yes, I'm absolutely that, I'm terrible, I shouldn't have had that privilege, or, you know, they only did that to me. I can tell other stories that way. Yes, all of them have a peace. Can I bear with so that the end of suffering, the vision of the end of suffering, is not that I've managed to get rid of it or use my body to suppress it anymore or my mind? But my vision of the end of suffering is that my vision is transformed. That suffering is not an error, but is something that I can touch and get wider with if I take my seat in my location. As I embrace the causes and conditions in my social location, my historical location, my language, my nationality, my education, my place in my family. The knocks and joys of the playground. All of it. Not dwelling in my history. Yes, there's a place for that at times if we need to digest certain things. But right now, taking your seat in a mandala, imagining a map around you, both horizontally, in front of you, behind you, to your sides, above and below. Dhamma Vinaya, the inner domains, the outer domains in social, historical location. Taking my seat there is how I can know the timeless Dhamma that the Buddha speaks to about, points us to as that which can transcend the, this 
without losing our intimacy and while our heart gets bigger. If I want to know timeless Dhamma and he invites us, he says, come and see for yourself. Just come and see for yourself. This Dharma is timeless. It is immediate. It is here and now inviting investigation to be experienced by each wise one for herself, for himself. If we want this bright awakening, let our view of awakening be big not because that makes us a better person (laughs) but because it allows us I think to take our hands off take my hands off having to lean on any particular point in that mandala as who I am Yes, I can take responsibility, all being well, with grace, with support, with resource. I can take responsibility. One of the other ways awakening is described is the Buddha is one who is utterly single. Utterly single, perfectly single. And what does that mean? I've understood it to mean that she, he, knows the timeless dharma, like the vertical, we could say, the vertical dimension, right through the center of things, immovable, unperturbable, different from not being disturbed. The Buddha is one who is unperturbable. Not because he's not willing to be disturbed. I think he was disturbed a lot. I think people disturbed him. He had all kinds of guys coming to him and people and you know knocking on his door. It's not about pushing away disturbance, this image of equanimity. He knows this imperturbability because he's not anymore having to lean on any one of those conditions. He's not having to lean on an idea about himself. Oh good, I'm a really good guy. I'm doing a really good job here in North India looking after these people and teaching them Dharma. He's not leaning on an image of good nor bad. He's not leaning on an idea of who he is anymore based in his clan and his people. Yes, he honors them absolutely. Not identifying with clan and people is not escaping. He went back. He he said, the shade of my peoples is dear to me when he goes and sits outside the gate when some of them have been imprisoned. Yes, there's affection, there's humanness, there's his people. But he's not leaning on that anymore for knowledge of the world. There he is perfectly single. Breathing in. And breathing out, upright and gentle. Not because he's fixed everything, but because he's included 
And I'll read this piece from Ajahn Sachito once more. It says, This is the world that the Dharma Vinaya addresses. This is the nature of which we humans are an intrinsic aspect. We are the aspect of this cosmos that can reflect on itself and that can thereby develop a holistic wisdom that embraces and transcends any point or detail within the whole. Such wisdom accepts and cares for all, but is not attached or confined to any position within the cosmos, whether that be self, other, mind state. Have you ever got attached to any mind states? Tree, society, or infinite consciousness. The culmination of this development is called awakening. Sambodhi. So taking your seat as you begin your practice. Taking this seat, not having to make it complicated. It's complex. We are knitted and woven into everything. We could say that's very complex. But will you willingly take your seat in your location? Right now, letting your sit bones and the flesh around your buttocks relax. Yeah, breathe out. Let your belly relax. Let the hands be soft. The Buddha is perfectly single, I would say. He was perfectly, completely um, touchable also. That's how he got to be a good teacher. Apparently, the, um, in the classic tradition, the difference between an arahant and a Buddha, in case you're interested, I find it very interesting. An arahant is fully awakened. A Buddha is a, a perfect teacher. What's the difference? And I would say that, you know, one of the things about the Buddha, he teaches perfectly those who wish to be taught. He meets each one where they're at. How does he do that? Because he's contactable, he's touchable. In his, his awakening has developed such that he is impressionable. The chitta is restored to its impressionable status as it was when we're young, except we're not awakened when we're young. We're impressionable, for better and for worse. We harden, we get our defenses, our patterns, etc., etc., etc. His chitta is returned to impressionability, like a, like a, like a plasticine or an or a earth where each one's soul that comes to him, each one's chitta, makes an impression. And because he's done his work, the impression that it makes, he doesn't have to tighten around it or push it away or get stuck with it. He can feel the shape of that being and he can respond. He can feel the shape of the world and he can respond according to his means and his gifts and his location. 
Taking your seat is how we begin with Satipatthana. Whether your retreat is dedicated to samatha, insight, compassion, brahma-viharas, whatever way you're conceiving your intention for your formal practice this month, all of it begins by taking our seat. Our seat includes our body, that our intention is not abstracted only, but can become embedded in ourselves. The Buddha, the juncture in the Buddha's journey where he, you know, he he really did the warrior thing, didn't he? He really embraced that beautiful young man's path of going for it which is absolutely written into the teachings a beautiful beautiful archetype and and just one archetype the warrior he went for it he went to all extremes he experienced the best of the pleasure so they say and the deepest of the meditations in denying his body the second one Right, in not taking care of the body. And the, 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 the junction I find very interesting is where he'd been to the extreme path of the ascetic and he said, okay, that's really interesting and that's not taken me to this awakening that I sense is possible. The metaphor is given of that's when he, was, he, uh, he remembered the impressionability of being a young boy. Do you remember that part? So they say... He remembered being seven or eight under the tree and something about that innocence and youth spoke to him. Oh, yeah, something about that, he remembered. And in that asceticism, which he was valuing over the world of form and body, this is when he was visited by Sajata, a woman who offered him milk rice, where he could value again, once again, the deep nourishment of the earth, the deep nourishment of the, of the depth feminine aspect, that his passion and his zeal and his ardency and fire married with this um, deep earth nourishment, not making a hierarchy. He took his place. He took his seat and he woke up. So, just finishing up here. Letting this translate to this breath. Not making this become a project. For a self who's going to become perfectly single and 
perfectly embrace everything. Coming back to that relinquishing. There's a, there's a kind of humility in taking our seat. Because it's not in my control. I can set my compass, I can set my intention. I can cultivate causes and conditions that are wholesome, that reflect a holism. I make my resolve. And just keeping, making it very practical, just, you know, some things that are really recommended and helpful, knowing when you wake up in the morning on this retreat, having a, a word with yourself of what the day is dedicated to. Making it really practical. So we go from whatever your vision is. It may not be what I've offered, but I offer that for the, for the map. Whatever your vision is, how that translates to your intention and your action, articulate that in, in, to yourself in the morning. You wake up, okay, what is this day dedicated to? When you come in the meditation hall or sit in your room or in the hermitage wing, taking your seat, making it firm, don't let it be vague. What is this sitting dedicated to? Know it, articulate it in words. What is this walking dedicated to? As I go to lunch, what do I want to cultivate right now? We don't have to do anything perfectly. We're not asked that. But we are asked to see when there's a moment of mindfulness, wakefulness, can I set my intention? Can I reset my intention? When I've kind of blown off course and I'm, you know, off-piste, so to speak. Can I come back and set my intention? This we can trust. The Buddha, again, in his brilliance and practicality, three wise intentions, he says, you can come back to. The intention of non-clinging, right? The intent, so relinquishment, letting go, release. The intention of non-harming. Metta. And the intention of non-cruelty, compassion we don't have to remember everything else about the world in any moment we can come back to this like a red thread okay yeah can I line up with that relinquishing can I dedicate this sitting to relinquishing oh that already feels good it's not at the end of the path it's right now I let myself be relinquished with the out breath hmm I let myself be relinquished as my flesh softens, my buttocks relax, and I say, yes, I'm here. Sometimes I'd rather be somewhere else, but right now I'm here. I relinquish myself down into my seat, and that's where I meet That's where I meet everything.
<coughs> may your practice be deeply nourishing for you. May you re- receive the divine nourishment of breath, of body, of earth. May it be illuminating for you, seeing deeply and clearly, and may there be great joy in all the discoveries along the way. May you hold yourself kindly when the mind is struggling in pain, dense, hard, resistant, hurt. May you take refuge in real refuges of timeless, immediate Dhamma. 